So I'm finding this a little bit embarrassing. Um, this this talk begins with a, a fairy tale, and uh, I'm not really sure why. <laughs> um, it's just been in my head for a few months, and uh, perhaps it's a, a good teaching that everything is a teaching. So anything that we meet in life and particularly anything that has some kind of impact, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense why, can have some juice in it, can have something um, that we can learn from. And so the, the fairy tale is, um, is Beauty and the Beast. And uh, you don't have to remember it, I'll tell you. <laughs> At least I'll just tell you the very, very bare bones outline. So um, the story is about a, a merchant who is traveling for his business and he gets lost um, in the dark. I think there's also a storm, as happens in fairy tales. And uh, he finds himself completely lost um, and he gets to this um, mysterious uh, kind of palace or manor house, if you're English. And uh, he, you know, he walks in and kind of everything is uh, very well organized and very smooth, but there's nobody around particularly. But he has a nice meal and um, good rest. And... Uh, Never, find, never, never finds out who his host is. I might not be remembering this accurately, by the way, just to say so. <laughs> yeah, if, if I'm making mistakes, then uh, just, uh, you know, just artistically way. As he's leaving uh, the next day, of course, the storm is over and the sun comes up and everything's clear and he's leaving and he walks through the gardens. Um, he remembers that his uh, youngest daughter, Belle, or beauty, um, asked him to bring her back a gift from his travels. And uh, he notices a very beautiful rose in the garden. And so he plucks the rose to take as a gift to his daughter. As he does this, the whole scene changes and suddenly this, this beast, a uh, very scary, ugly creature arrives and... Um, basically wants to punish him for, you know, after receiving his hospitality, wanting to leave and taking and take to, plucking the rose and wanting to take it. And he begs him to um, spare him and forgive him and says, you know, it's a gift from my daughter and describes his love for his daughter and all her wonderful qualities. Um, and the beast agrees to a deal. The deal is that the merchant can go back home safe, but one of his three daughters needs to come back and live with, the, with him, with the beast. And the merchant agrees. And when he goes home, only the youngest um, beauty agrees to, to do that, to spare her father's life. I'll try and get short and briefer. <laughs> she goes back and, you know, there's all this ongoing thing where slowly she gets to know uh, the beast and they become friends. Um, and he, he repeatedly asks her to marry him, and she says no because she doesn't love him. Um, eventually, through some magic, she uh, finds out that her father is ill, and she begs for permission to go back to um, visit him and care for him. And uh, she's given a certain amount of time that she can, she can go for and promises to come back. 
And when she gets back home, things happen and she, um, for various reasons, forgets her promise, doesn't come back on time. And then she gets another one of these magic images of seeing the, the beast heartbroken, lying like dead in the garden next to the rose bush. And she goes back and uh, she realizes that she does love him, even though he's a beast. And as she's, um, I, this I really don't remember, but in some way he comes back to life, and not only that, he's transformed into a prince, which is you know, the least least important part of the story. And I'll get back. I'll get back. I'll get to that at the end of the talk. So that's the story, and you probably were wondering. <laughs> And still are, how does that actually relate to what we're doing here at all? And you also might be wondering, you know, finally your, your mind is quietened down. And here I come, I'm sitting here and I'm actually telling you a fairy tale, fairy tale probably inaccurately. And, you know, off it goes again. I've just kind of been triggering it away. So I'd actually like to use some of the, of the wisdom in this story, and there is wisdom in this story, to, to highlight um, the, the teachings and the practices that we've been engaged in, that we are engaged here um, with here, what we're exploring together. And so the first thing that really stands out um, in this story is, is a real emphasis, real importance on an underlying attitude of kindness and of generosity. It's a real thread through, through this whole story, a real thread. Um, it's really important and it's equally <laughs> or even more important in our practice here, this underlying attitude which I promise that we'll be reminding you of and I am. Kindness, non-harming, generosity. Really, really important. It also, um, in the story, we, there's also, and this may be less obvious to us, and hopefully will be more obvious as I, as I go through the talk, there's a real, um, like we can really see the, the complex um, and impermanent, changeable and non-separate nature of things in this very simple fairy tale. Yeah, not, maybe not in the Disney version um, but probably even there. So we can really, really see, and I'll, I'll explain this more, the changeable, inconstant, non-separate, conditioned nature of all things. So, examples. So the first um, kind of example that was coming to me is like we see, if we just look at the, at the, um, the narrative the main points in the narrative. So we see how, um, you know, plucking of the rose as a gift, something with a good intention, actually leads to something which seems bad, negative, tragedy. Yeah, threat to the father's life, separation of Belle from her family, you know. And then that twists again, actually ends in happiness. Yeah, so something looks good or something looks bad and yet even in a fairy tale which tends to kind of really simplify these things it isn't what it seems yeah, it's more complex than what it seems it's more than just the original kind of sense does that make sense to people okay good 
otherwise I would doubt my sanity. Um, and, you know, at the end, there's happiness for all. And again, to emphasize the first point, the, the underlying kindness and generosity of both beauty and of the beast are what leads to that happiness in the end. They're essential to the happiness. They're both kind and generous. Very, very much. The other kind of really the main um, pillar that the story rotates around is that nothing is as one-dimensional as we think it is. Yeah, nothing is as simple as we think it is. Nothing is one-dimensional as we think it is. Yeah, loving father, willing to sacrifice his daughter. You know, for that. That's one example. Um, and nothing is as constant or permanent as we think it is either. So, you know, in the story, the shift, you know, from something or someone who is ugly, scary, unlovable, and then as the story progresses, is actually kind, attractive, lovable. You know, so nothing is fixed, nothing is as fixed as we, we think it is. And when we kind of go from the story into our practice, into our experience, into our lives, we can take this further. You know, this is true. This is true for everything, you know, and especially what we experience in our inner life, our views, our perceptions, um, how we see things, how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see phenomena in our experience. You know, it's all conditioned, it's all changing. It's not constant, it's not fixed, it's not solid in the way that we think it is. So I find this really interesting. Personally, I find this really interesting. And Dharma teachings spend quite a lot of time exploring this, this territory. So when we spend... Um, more time, yeah, when we spend more time or give more of our attention to something, our perception of it changes, yeah, when we spend more time, give more of our attention to something, our perception of it changes, and how, how does that happen? So one way that it happens is as we give more time, as we give more attention, we gain more understanding, we see more deeply and more fully. Yeah, so instead of just seeing something as just one-dimensional, simplistic, just that, we start seeing, our, we, we deepen it in our, in our understanding and we see more fully. That's one way that our perception changes. Another way that our perception changes is that the interest itself, yeah, what leads us to spend more time or give more attention is a degree of interest. That interest itself changes perception. And you may have already had some experiences of that over the days. Yeah, uh, Vedana practice, the practice that we've been working with today is really can be very, very um, powerful with this. You know, so maybe we're watching the Vedana and there's an unpleasant Vedana. 
and we're paying attention, we're interested in that unpleasant Vedana. And as we pay attention, the Vedana changes. You know, we're still looking at the Vedana of the same experience. You know, it can be a body pain, it can be a sound. So as, as we're paying attention, just with the attention, the Vedana shifts. And if you, you know, it's not, um, you may not have had that experience today. That's, that's fine, you know, it's not like you've failed <laughs> or missed out on something. But that's, you know, that's something that we begin to see in our practice. What happens when we give attention? What happens when we bring interest? Just the interest itself has an effect. You know, sometimes um, we can feel it just in our, you know, doing mindfulness practice and we notice some degree of contraction somewhere, you know, emotionally or in the body. And we're not even making, you know, there's not even the intention to relax or to um, ease that contraction, but just with the attention, just with bringing the attention, there's a little bit of an easing off. So the experience changes just with the interest. So what we call, you know, we call this... um, ways of looking. So what we call the way of looking at experience, the way I'm looking at my experience. And I'll give examples if it's not clear. What we call the way of looking at something, whether that something is myself, another, a phenomena, an object, the way of looking itself has an impact on what I actually perceive. And yeah, and this is not easy to to grasp. That's why the examples are important. But the way of looking. And, you know, to give the most coarse example from the fairy tale, and I think this is something we actually all know from our lives, you know, the beast stops being ugly or scary because the way of looking changes. Yeah? At first, there's only the whatever impacts and creates fear. And then the kindness, the time spent together, the getting to know, the friendship, changes that. Changes that. The perception changes through the way of looking. And, you know, I think this is, if you reflect, I I know certainly I've had this experience many times, and probably you have also, you know, we meet something or somebody, and we have a perception, very coarse, simple perception. This is a beautiful or non-beautiful person or place. And then we spend more time, we get to know it, the, the way of looking changes. And that original impression changes. Yeah? Someone we didn't think was particularly beautiful is very beautiful. <laughs> Happens quite a lot when you fall in love. You know? Or someone we thought was very you know, physically pleasing. You know, we, we, we get to know them you get to know other aspects of that person and they're no longer that and it can be the same with a place you know so just that that change you know it's a very kind of gross example of this movement and it has much more subtle manifestations which of course are the ones um, you know we're, we're more primarily interested in but it's sometimes really helpful to just think of, of really um, clear examples 
so in 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 the fairy tale of course you know again that the the beast um I, I hate calling him that maybe we can make him give him another name <laughs> um the prince um so he's perceived as scary and you know when you when we think of our own experience you know we see something that uh, makes us fearful yeah so then we um we are seeing through that lens of fear. And so anything that then that person or being will do will be interpreted <coughs> through that. Yeah? And then we'll reinforce that view. We'll reinforce that view. And so then the fear, the fear will build up even more. And I just thought of a, 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 the opposite example with monkeys. You know, if you didn't know monkeys well, and you thought that they were like humans, and you came across a monkey, and the monkey did something that looks like a smile, <laughs> and you'd think the, the, the monkey was being friendly, that could turn out unpleasant, you know, because it's actually very different, you know. No, that, is, that is a sign that the, the monkey, it's a threat, you know, there. So... You know, that's, again, you know, we're, we're looking in a certain way. We're looking through the human lens, yeah, which is our conditioned lens, and we're not, if we don't know, we could make a mistake there. We're not taking in the monkeyness. And so what's also interesting, talking about the beast, is, is how that experience also gets built up from his side. You know, if we think of ourselves in a situation where we were being feared, and whatever actions we did would be interpreted through a lens of fear. And again, we know this from our own experience, either directly for ourselves and other people or beings that we've met. We then, you know, that um, scary aspect gets reinforced. It gets reinforced. And so we, we become that which others think we are. Yeah, it, it has, it's such an interconnected arena, so interconnected. And of course, you know, the beast, his experience with beauty was different, yeah? Wasn't reinforced. She slowly, you know, or very quickly lost the fear and started appreciating. And so that interconnected process. So I really... um, yeah, I'm really hoping not to get caught up in the in the story and to really uh, make this clear on a, on a deeper level. Um, I have a tendency to get caught up in stories of all kinds, um, in in many ways. So this is my practice for tonight. So I want to say this in another way. I want to say this in another way. What I've been I've been trying to say. If I look at something in a very one-dimensional way. Yeah, in a very one-dimensional way. So, you know, that this person or experience or object or myself are this. You know, and you can fill in the blank what this is. A good meditator, a bad meditator, a nice person, not a nice person. Someone attractive, someone unattractive. You know, somewhere I want to be, somewhere I don't want to be. If I look at it just from that kind of narrow, solid way of looking, one-dimensional and I ignore everything else that's going on. 
and ignore everything else that's going on, such as, you know, what else is going on? Um, the state of my mind <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm looking, as I'm meeting, the experience. You know, is my mind alert or dull? Is it restless or calm? You know, I'm ignoring the state of my mind. I'm ignoring the state of my body, which is affecting my mind. I'm ignoring my habits and conditioning. So all of these are affecting my perception in the moment. They're all affecting my perception. If I don't include them, or if I don't just simply include that there's more going on than that one dimension of the meeting. So if I ignore that that's going on, that it's affecting my perception, and the other conditions are affecting my perception. What happens is I believe that first impression. Yeah, I believe that as an absolute. And so I'll continue to look. I'll continue to look at what is going on through that initial lens, whatever that was. And as I do that, that impression will get stronger. So it's like a, a self-feeding cycle. And so I keep repeating, looking in a way that strengthens the initial or the existing view. A view that in, you know, Buddha Dharma language, a view that is rooted in ignorance. Because it takes something which is changeable, conditioned, fluid, not separate, and sees it as solid, inherent, permanent, it, you know that. I have another possibility. Yeah, we have another possibility. We have the possibility to really train ourselves, sensitize ourselves, to remember as much as possible, to remember as much as possible the complexity of life, the complexity of experience, the complexity of beings. And to bring that into the way of looking. So it's not just some kind of theoretical idea, but I actually bring it directly into my experience. I bring it into my way of looking. And then I can see more. Yeah, I can see the moments when my perception or my view um, isn't true. You know, I might, for example, you know, think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a really restless meditator. Or, you know, today's a very, I'm, I'm, I'm having a really restless day. That's not uncommon in meditation retreats to have that view. And if I constantly look through that lens, what I'll see is the restlessness. That's what I'll notice. And so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Keep strengthening. If I open up the vista a little bit and look with more detail, yeah, more interest, I'll see the moments when I'm also not restless. Yeah? And there's bound to be quite a few of those. I'll see moments when I'm also not restless, not agitated. 
I can see causes and conditions that might be leading to whatever that experience is, you know, restlessness. If that's, if that's what's happening, I can see causes and conditions that I may be feeding that. And that means that I'm less trapped, less limited in my, actually in my own head, in my own mind. Less trapped and less limited. I have more possibilities. And my actual experience changes. Because every time I notice a moment when I'm not restless, that eases off that idea, that tension, that building up of the restless self and the restless identity. Does that make sense to people? You can do like this if it doesn't. So, so. And this opens up um, a real area of exploration for us. It opens up a real area of exploration. Both exploring how conditions affect my way of looking and also how the way of looking affects perception. Both of those. And the results of these kind of explorations are less rigidity, less identification, less expectation for lasting happiness from things that in their nature are unsatisfactory. Less contraction, less clinging, less dukkha, you know, where we're all heading. <laughs> less dukkha. You know, from something that is very profound, but also relatively simple. And I'll just repeat, exploring how conditions are affecting my way of looking and how the way of looking is affecting perception. And through perception affecting experience. And from there, less rigidity, less identification, less contraction, less clinging, less dukkha. And so finally, example. Not a very interesting one, but still. It's a very simple example of physical discomfort or physical pain. I'm tempted to ask if nobody's experienced that through the days, but I won't. <laughs> I'm kind of going to go on the, on the assumption that uh, everyone knows what I'm talking about. So some sense of physical discomfort or physical pain. And what our mind does with that is solidify it. Pain, you know, it's like capitals, you know, pain. <laughs> yeah, it becomes a thing, solidifies around and solidifies that pain. I know pain, yeah? We know pain, that's pain, that is pain. I know that pain. We see it as something we know, we see it as something permanent. And... The way of looking, for most of us, is that the pain is a problem. Yeah, Pain is a problem. So not only do I know it, not only is it in capitals, you know, but I, you know, it's a problem. You know, I don't like it. I, I, really important, I don't like it. It's a problem. 
and it needs to change. No? Absolutely needs to change. You know, the planet cannot go on <laughs> if this pain does not change. And I'm exaggerating, but also I'm not. You know, if we really look at our mind in these kind of situations, it's like life cannot go on if this does not change. And so it's, it's really interesting to break it down and look at that process. Yeah, this is pain. I know it. It's a problem. It needs to change. And, you know, the contraction is there, obviously. And then another view will come out of all of that process. You know, the view can be, I can't possibly meditate for as long as this pain is there. You know, that, that can be um, a view. Or, you know, the pain is to blame because, you know, I can't meditate because of the pain. Or, you know, I'm to blame because if I was a good meditator, I could meditate even though I'm in pain. Or, you know, whatever spin that goes on. But this is all um, the proliferation of just that very um, simple physical sensation that we started off with. And this I can't meditate because of the pain solidifies that way of looking of at pain as a problem. Yeah? Because of course it's a problem because that's, it's, that is what's stopping me from meditating. Right? So it gets stronger. And then we find ourselves, you know, from that possibly spiraling off into, you know, countless other things like planning our new exercise regime, which will, you know, completely deal with this pain, which we'll never experience again. Um, Or designing the perfect meditation posture or the perfect meditation cushion or the perfect meditation bench or whatever it is, which will leave us pain free for the rest of our meditation um, life. And, you know, this gets so crucial and involving that the bell eventually goes for the end of the sitting. And, you know, we're not at all aware of the pain by that point because, you know, all of this has been going on in our minds. So I was hoping that would be funny. <laughs> You're already serious about it. <laughs> anyway, there you go. This, this kind of spiraling that goes off from, um, you know, just the initial experience, the initial experience of, of unpleasant sensation in the body. Um, it's called papancha. Nathan mentioned it briefly this morning, or maybe less briefly. Briefly? Mm-hmm. Depends on your way of looking. Okay. <laughs> Good one. Um, it really creates, a, a, in this case, a dynamic of problem. And that dynamic of problem becomes what I see things through. Yeah? So the actual, the problem grows, and, and I think the idea of, of saying, you know, the bell rings and we're not even aware of the pain anymore, the problem and the dynamic of, of that around it grows way beyond the pain. So we're not even aware of the sensation of the pain anymore, but that has taken off a life of its own. And the same kind of cycle can happen with pleasant phenomena. So it doesn't have to be just something unpleasant. So, 
an interesting exploration can be what happens when I change the way of looking. So instead of, you know, the habitual conditioned way of looking of pain equals, you know, I want it to go away and it's a problem, if I actually change the way of looking. So instead of that, I bring in interest. I bring in attention to detail. Um, I bring in curiosity. I bring in Vedana practice. Um, I bring in spaciousness practice. All of these. So that same pain, if it's not being defined as a problem, becomes an object of interest. And that can really change the perception. That can really change the perception. Instead of problem, something interesting. And sometimes if we actually start exploring, as we were speaking about yesterday, exploring the pain, looking at the detail, looking at the sensations, looking at it coming and going, you know, not permanent, that starts to really um, take away from the solidity and the problematic nature. And I don't know if Nathan used this example or not, but um, some years ago, a friend of ours who was doing long, long periods of retreat, and she, um, she got to a point where she began to really love difficulty and problems. <laughs> and she would kind of say, bring it on, you know, because whatever stuff she would see in herself, yeah, whatever stuff she would see in herself, she would exactly do this. She would, instead of looking at it as a problem, instead of looking at it as solid, instead of looking at it as um, something with a real um, strong existence, she would start unraveling it. She would start looking at it. She would get close with it. You know, she would work with it in a really playful way and it would dissolve and change. And that experience of it dissolving and changing brought so much joy and release. And at some point, she even went around and asked all her friends to tell her what her issues were so that she could work with them in meditation. <laughs> because, you know, she, she enjoyed it so much. It was, such a, it was so much fun. So, you know, it's, it's just really inspiring and wonderful to hear about. And we can all do that, you know, in, in, in varying degrees, to varying degrees just to start bringing in interest and playfulness and experimentation as we have been, to look at these things that we see one-dimensionally and solid and inherently problematic. And in that way, um, even though, you know, as I've said, everything I'm saying works equally with what is pleasant or joyful or what we desire, um, sometimes the, the challenging things or the places where there is um, where there is dukkha, where there is unsatisfactoriness, they have a lot of power for us because there's a lot of energy that we use up in trying to avoid or deny them. So in the actual turning towards, in the actual exploration, in the actual um, getting intimate with and playing with, a lot of energy is released and there can be a lot of, a lot of sense of relief and ease that comes with that and joy. So this kind of being interested in, okay, how, what happens when I change the way I'm looking at that? that? Just that simply 
can really uh, reduce the sense of the problematic in our lives. It can really reduce the sense of the problematic. So just to reiterate again, you know, this really strong human habit, yes, this is a human habit and human conditioning to solidify things and give them an inherent nature of being, you know, good or bad, black and white, something I want or something I don't want, you know, really strong habit that we have. And what we're practicing here, what we're developing and cultivating are skills and ways of looking that support us to see differently and to just really broaden and deepen the way we look at things. And also kind of what's available to us, you know, not just there's the conditioned ways and we're actually broadening that. We're opening up to more ways of looking at experience, more ways of relating to experience. And this, again, I've been saying it, but this directly leads to reduction in dukkha in our lives. Directly leads to that. So, you know, something happens. We feel something, we see something, we think something. And there's that conditioned response. But instead of jumping on that train of the conditioning, I've stolen that line from Nathan, by the way. He talks about the Papantra train. Instead of jumping on that train, we just stop. We take a breath, we take a moment, and we remember, you know, this is a conditioned way of looking. But it's not telling the whole story. So can I just step back, take another look, take in conditions, you know, take in impermanence, take in the changeable, changeable nature and inconstant nature of everything. And so I've kind of been saying this quite a lot, maybe you're tired of hearing it. I've been mentioning quite a lot in different words um, what are called the three characteristics or the three marks of existence in in Buddhist philosophy. The fact that everything is, um, and this is just one, I'm going to say a few words here, but I'll just say this is just one, that everything is impermanent, changeable, inconstant. Yeah, all of phenomena that as a result of this, things are not satisfactory. Yeah? We're looking for satisfaction in that which is changeable, inconstant, and impermanent. And that nothing exists in an inherently separate way from other phenomena, other beings other ways of looking. Nothing exists inherently separate. And, you know, these three are like um, three treasures. Yeah, really, really powerful to explore, relate to, not as a belief system. You know, it's really important to say, you know, they're not being, you know, it's not like, ah, this is how the world is. That's the belief system. It's inconstant. It's unsatisfactory. And there is no inherent sense of self, either in beings or in phenomena. 
It's not a belief system. It's a way, these are ways of looking that we can use to explore and further deepen our understanding and lessen the amount of dukkha that we have in our lives. That's what it's useful for. And when we really, really play with ways of looking, we expand, look in different ways. You know, so if I take that example again of, of the pain in the body and I look for impermanence in that pain, is it constant or is it changing? And look in that way. What do I find and how does that affect me? And if I look at that pain in the body through the way of looking of, is this solid? Does it have an inherent beingness? Where does it end? I look at that. How does that affect my experience? How does that change my experience? So this allows us to kind of go beyond our very conditioned and very human habitual ways of relating to life, relating to ourselves, relating to experience. And to open to a way of being that is more alive, more dynamic, less self-centered and more free. And so this is, it's so, um, it's so applicable, it's so applicable to us. You know, at any moment, any moment, we can check and see. How am I looking at experience right now? Whatever that experience is, you know, it can be going to bed, it can be lunch, <laughs> it can be um, coming into the hall, anything, anything, this thought, this physical sensation, anything. How am I looking at it? What is the way of looking that's present right now? And really including attitude, expectations, views, assumptions, past experience, energy levels in that understanding of the way of looking. And how is the way of looking affecting or shaping my perception? So how am I looking at experience and how is that way of looking actually shaping and affecting my perception. How is that working? You can try it now as you're listening. And can I apply a different way of looking that will reduce contraction and therefore reduce dukkha? Is there another way of looking that I could apply that will reduce suffering, reduce dukkha. On some levels, you know, the biggest, the, the kind of strongest way of looking that um, we have is the one that puts us at the center of the universe. Yeah, very, very strong. It's about me. It's about me. And what happens if we notice that that is what, what's at play, and then we shift it, we look at a different way. We look at, at it in a different way.
So this is really about engagement. It's really about experimentation. It's really about attending to what is arising in our life and in our experience. So that we learn for ourselves what reduces dukkha and what increases it. <laughs> yeah, really simple. And we learn for ourselves so that we can apply. So if we go back to the story, if you still remember it, <laughs> when when Belle, when Beauty came to the to the to this palace, she didn't just shut herself up in her room. You know, she engaged. She conversed. She got to know. She experimented. And that was crucial um, for the change in her perception and ultimately in her life. That was crucial. To give an example um, more directly from, from our experience and the practice here, and we haven't gotten there yet with the metta practice, we might go there tonight, when we practice metta for um, what we call the challenging person, someone or being, someone who we find challenging, someone who we find difficult, initially to a very small degree. Sometimes that person, certainly in my experience, I have to admit it's usually people, rather than animals <laughs> that I find challenging. What happens is that that part of the meta practice becomes the most potent and the most powerful. This is really interesting because we're changing the way of looking. Instead of seeing that person as problematic, challenging, bringing an attitude of unconditional friendliness towards them. And that, with time, with practice, completely shift the experience. And that becomes, you know, sometimes it's my favorite, you know, because it's the most potent, the most powerful. It's as if, um, partly because of the change in the way of looking, there's a lot of release in energy. But also, using that kind of um, charged emotional response to someone that I find difficult, using that energy, utilizing that energy towards friendship, towards kindness. And there's something in that shift. Something in that shift where There's a taste of a friendliness which isn't conditioned by my own personal preferences. Yeah, it's not, again, that shift. It's not just about me, but it's about something much deeper, much bigger than that. The great sense of well being that comes through that great sense of well-being that comes through that.
So I said that I would end with just saying one sentence about the end of the fairy tale, which is my personal take, where the beast turns into a prince. And uh, for me, that feels um, pretty irrelevant because it's quite clear that in, in Beauty's eyes, he already was. You know, so that was just, just an external shift. But it's that internal, internal shift in the looking, that internal shift in the seeing that we're really interested in. That we're really interested in, that we're really um, practicing for together. So let's just have a, a quiet moment together to bring this to a close. So may our practice together continue to nourish kindness, generosity, and non-harming in our own hearts and the world around us. May we engage with our lives and with our experience, discovering ways of looking that reduce self-centeredness that reduce suffering in all beings and for all beings, including ourselves. <laughs>